This is Real Estate Rookie episode 274. You can always ask or maybe offer something too. So you could go to the tenant if you really want to increase the rent, but also maybe you're going to rehab their whole kitchen and remodel it for them. Is go to them and if they agree to the increased price to get their kitchen remodeled, then you can go ahead and have them sign that you both are breaking that lease agreement and you both are signing a new lease agreement with that increased rent. My name is Ashley Kerr and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Robinson. And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we give you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And I wanna to start today's episode by shouting out someone by the username of Naftali B. And Naftali said, great show. Thank you, Ashley and Tony. I really enjoy listening to the Ricky podcast. You guys provide so many great tips and insights and provide a true path for Ricky to start investing in real estate. Keep those episodes coming. Uh, so for those of you that are listening that are part of the Ricky audience, if you haven't yet left us an honest rating and review, it would mean the world to us if you took a few moments to do that. Uh, the more reviews we get, more folks we can help and helping folks is what we love doing here. Isn't that right, Ashley? Yes, yes. So today we have a great Rookie Reply episode. Uh, don't forget, you can leave us a question in the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group, and we may uh, answer it on the show for you today. So we talk about an estoppel agreement, um, which is and also about lease agreements as to when you inherit tenants, when can you actually raise the rent? Um, we go into getting a pre-approved for a loan. When is a good time to get a pre-approved before you're thinking of buying? Then also another very common question that we get LLC or putting a property in your personal name, which we break it all down for you. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's rent retirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve steadily.com. 
At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. All right. So the first question today comes from Simon Wozniaka. And Simon's question is, hi, all. I'm going to rent out my first rental property soon. And I was wondering if I should go with property management or do I just rent it out to someone myself? What would you recommend? How much of the income would such a company usually take? What would they do that I couldn't do myself? Simon, this is a fantastic question, and I think that a lot of new investors uh, probably go back and forth on this the same idea or the same kind of challenge as well. Um, when it comes down to property management, there's really three, three things that I consider. It's time, it's desire, and it's ability. Okay. Um, first, you got to ask yourself, do you have the time to manage a property on your own? If you have a super busy W-2 job um, and maybe a bunch of family commitments or community commitments, and you just can't fathom trying to eke out another, you know, however much time you need to manage your property, then maybe hiring a property manager makes sense. Um, second is ability. Like, do you have the skills to uh, manage? Uh, essentially, it's like a, an ongoing project that you're managing, right? Like taking in maintenance requests from your, your tenants and making sure those get completed in a timely fashion. Um, as if there's payment issues that you're managing that, that you're staying on top of the leases. And there's a lot that goes into being an effective property manager. And you have to ask yourself, do your abilities line up with what it would take to be a successful property manager? Um, and then the last piece is desire. Do you actually want to do all of those things? Or even if you have the time, even if you have the ability, do you actually have the desire to do those things on a daily basis? Because if you don't, it it can really take the fun out of being a, a real estate investor if you're forcing yourself into this box of activities that you don't thoroughly enjoy. So the first thing I would look at, Simon, is is time, ability, and then desire. So Asha, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on on long-term property rental management. So what, what do you what do you have for Simon? I think the biggest thing is, is make sure that you can, you know, know what the fair housing laws are, the rules and regulations, the laws in your area, in your market, because that's where you can get into the most trouble. Um, first of all, do you want to pay for the convenience of having somebody take over your whole property? The thing to remember, though, is even if you hire a property management company, that does not mean you are automatically a passive investor. You'll have to do some asset management, too, such as going through your owner's reports every month and seeing what you've been charged for, what's going on with your property, making, you know, if tenants aren't paying or late fees being collected, things like that, and just overseeing your property management company. So take that into consideration. If you're looking to be completely passive or just you might as well do the work yourself, think about that too. Um, I, I recommend that, you know, exactly what Tony said, think about how much time you have that you can actually put into it. I did start out self-managing and it worked great until I got overwhelmed and I just didn't want to do it anymore. 
Um, so I think like look into if you can build out the systems and processes that can help you move it slowly and definitely focus on those in the beginning. So for that first property, document everything, make every checklist you can. So as you keep adding properties, it's just a smooth process and doesn't cause any more headaches or any kind of bottlenecks to your property management company or that you're using for yourself, for self-managing. Um, the income that a property management company usually takes, if you have a big portfolio, you can usually get a discount on that. But for somebody that only has one or two, the most common I am seeing right now is around 10%. Then there are always additional fees. Um, so ask what those fees are upfront um, and make sure that you're adding those fees in. So it's not just 10% is what they're taking out every month. You can look and see if they require you to do, you know, a yearly inspection where they charge you maybe $150 to go through the unit and just being proactive about it. But it's maybe a requirement that you they have that you do this inspection on your properties, things like that. So look into any other type of fee that they may have and then run your numbers based off of that. Even if you decide that you are going to self-manage right now, when you are running your numbers, when you are analyzing a deal, put in the property management numbers. Put those in so that if any time you decide that you no longer want to self-manage, you can make sure that the deal still makes sense to you. Yeah, Ashley, so a couple things you mentioned, like learning the laws. I think that's a super important thing, especially for newer investors because, um, and even more so if you're investing not in your own backyard. So if you're going you know, out of out of state, um, you, you definitely want to make sure you have a good understanding of that. So talking with either other local property management companies um, or uh, like real estate attorneys in, in that specific market who can tell you, hey, what are the things I need to do as a landlord to be compliant um, in the city? Uh, th there is, a, I think, another benefit to potentially hiring, uh, Simon, a property management company for your first property. Even if you don't plan to use them long term, what you do is you, if you hire them, you now have an inside look at how a professional would manage those properties. And say you you use them for six months to a year, whatever it is. During the, that time period, your goal isn't just to pay them so that you're hands off. Your goal is to understand what their systems and processes are so you can essentially copy and paste those into your own business once you get things up and running yourself. Um, so how do they handle rent collection? What do they do if there's a, a, a lease violation? How do they handle late payments? Um, what if there's disputes between, you know, people who are, if you have like a multifamily between the person in unit A and the person in unit B, um, how do they handle uh, renewing the leases? Like there's so many nuances that go into managing a property. And if you can see how a professional handles those things, when you go off to get that second property, now maybe instead of hiring that property manager, you can take all the system and processes you learned from that first property and apply them to the second one. So I do think, Simon, that for a new investor, sometimes there is value in paying that 10% or whatever it is so that you can get indoctrinated into the right way to manage your property. And then um, kind of the last question, what would they do that I couldn't do myself? Uh, for that question, I think um, really the resources that they have available that you may not and just the convenience. So do you want to receive phone calls or messages or do you want to be able to, do you want to have to call a vendor or find a vendor? Do you have a list of resources that you can go to if, you know, 
their toilet is plugged? Do you have a plumber that you can call that would get there in a timely manner? Things like that. So that can be a huge um, resource and convenience that they can offer than you can. Also, the fact that they have the system and tools built in place to list your property for rent on a ton of different websites and, you know, maybe just not Facebook Marketplace like you would be able to do. Um, software in place to make it easy for your tenants. I 100% definitely think that you can get the software in place and set up all these things a property management company has. And it's more, I think the, the real resource and benefit property management company is the convenience um, and just like hopefully less headaches by having them deal with it and just that they're professional and they know how to handle certain situations. Um, and then just like the resources and the people they have in their network to help you um, with your property to perform even better. Yeah. And, but I, I think in you touched on this a little bit already, Ashley, but just because you're hiring that property manager doesn't mean you become completely hands off and, and there still is a level of involvement you need to have. I think the only true time that you can be uh, a passive, passive investor is if you are either a private money lender for someone else's, you know, rehab or, or project, or if you're passively investing into a syndication, like those are the two times where literally all you're doing is putting up your money, and then a few months or maybe a few years, if it's a, it's a syndication, you get all your money back with a nice big fat return. Um, but every other form of real estate investing, whether it's long term, short term, um, uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever else it is, you need to have some level of active involvement to make sure that that property is profitable. All right. So question number two comes from Joaquin Hara. And Joaquin's question is, when you purchase a property with a tenant already in the middle of their lease, can you increase their rent or do you have to wait until their lease is up? Um, so Ashley, you you love to talk about the estoppel agreement and kind of how that, that uh, impacts landlords who are buying properties that already have tenants in place. So just for those of you that were confused like me, if you want to know how to spell that, it's E-S-T-O-P-P-L. So look up the word estoppel. Um, so Ashley, you want to break down kind of what that is and, and as a landlord, how you have to kind of abide by the, the leases that are already in place? Yeah. So an estoppel agreement is given to a tenant um, usually I prefer to give it before the tenant um, or before you purchase the property. So before you close on it, but you can give it to the, the tenant after you close on the property too. If the previous owner doesn't want you, you know, they don't want anybody to know they're selling or something like that. But really it's to verify everything in their lease agreement. So this, you definitely want to do this before you close when there are no leases in place. And it's just the owner telling you, oh, they pay me $400 a month in cash or, you know, they don't have a lease agreements month to month. You want to make sure the tenant is on the same page of that verbal agreement and the tenant isn't all of a sudden going to come out with a lease agreement saying, no, I actually only paid $300 per month. I don't know why he told you $400. Here's the signed copy of the lease agreement that he gave me. So um, that's definitely one way to, that you, to protect yourself is having them fill out. You get all their contact information. So it's really just to verify that everything in the lease agreement is, you know, the same that the the owner and the the tenant is saying you know you can ask who owns the appliances who's paying the utilities because even though there's something in a lease agreement it doesn't always mean that both parties are agreeing to the lease agreement maybe it says in a lease agreement no pets but the tenant has a dog in there and the owner just doesn't know or anything like that. So it's just a way to kind of find out some information that's about what's going on in the actual unit and about your tenant. 
um, and really helps you run your numbers too, because I also always ask, are there any repairs that are needed <laughs> inside of your unit? Yeah, I, but I, I think we can probably say this is a blanket statement. Obviously, Ashley and I haven't invested in every state in the United States, but I want to say most states probably have some type of protection that says, if you purchase a property where there's already a lease in place, you cannot just tell that tenant, hey, because I'm the new owner, your rent is going up by $500 per month. Um, there are usually some sort of protections in place for tenants to say if there's a legally binding document that's already in place, as a new owner, you have to honor that existing agreement and, and you can't just, you know, jack up the prices on the tenants that are already there. Yeah. And, um, you know, so make sure you're finding out when that lease agreement is up before you close on the property so that you know how long you're stuck into the lease agreement of them paying that, you know, maybe below market rent. Um, but make sure you know, too, your local laws as to how much notice you have to give them before their lease is up to actually increase the rent. So in New York State, it's kind of like a step up period if they live there for less than a year. And then it's 30 days notice if they've lived there for more than a year up to I think two years maybe or something like that it's 60 days and then over two years it's 90 days um, so make sure you know how much notice because you also don't want it to get into the situation where you don't give them enough notice and now you're having to wait even longer after the lease term is up. I think one more thing to notice too is that you can always ask or maybe offer something too. So you could go to the tenant if you really want to increase the rent, but also maybe you're going to rehab their whole kitchen and remodel it for them is go to them. And if they agree to the increased price to get their kitchen remodeled, then you can go ahead and have them sign that you both are breaking that lease agreement and you both are signing a new lease agreement with that increased rent. So just don't think that there's no negotiation that you can, if you both mutually agree to break the terms of the, the contract, then go ahead and um, you can go ahead and do that. It's not like they ha you have to stay into that lease agreement if you both want to mutually get out of that lease agreement too, or to change the, the rent. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring? Your search is over. Really, there's no need to search. Match instead with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates super fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to hire top talent faster. Speaking of top talent, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. But why do I love Indeed? 
because I'm busy and scrolling through 300 resumes is not helping my business grow. It's actually making it slow. With Indeed, I can hire faster and know I'm getting someone who can do the job. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to post your jobs with more visibility at Indeed.com slash rookie. Just go to Indeed.com slash rookie right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash rookie. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours, even the same day, with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Cool. Well, let's hop to our next question. This one comes from Sarah Lima. And Sarah's question is, do you use a realtor when you buy an investment home or is there any instance where you don't? I'm new, no realtor type education, and I'm looking at buying from a wholesaler, but not sure how to do this. Do I contact a realtor and then all three of us work together? So Sarah, yeah, I, you know, I think Ash and I both have purchased uh, real estate investments where there are no realtors involved. And you definitely don't have to use a realtor to execute a real estate transaction. Um, if you're looking at buying from a wholesaler, oftentimes they they don't have realtors involved. Um, so I can tell you how I've done it in, in my home state of California. And, and Ash can kind of give her insights on the, the New York side. There's some similarities, but some differences. So if you are working with a wholesaler, um, and, and this is how we do it in California. Typically, we use escrow and title as the intermediaries to facilitate that transaction. So if the wholesaler is telling you to wire funds directly to them, I would 1000% not do that. Okay, You want to make sure that all of the money that you are sending in for this deal is handled by some sort of third party. Um, again, typically for us in California, that's title and escrow that we work with to, to coordinate that. So the way that our transactions usually work is if I'm buying from a wholesaler, we execute our own purchase agreement. Um, so either the wholesaler has one or our escrow company can provide one for us. Um, and that just like you would if you were buying with a realtor, constitutes or I guess outlines all of the details of that transaction. So the earnest money deposit, your due diligence period when you guys plan to close, and any other um, agreements or provisions that you and that wholesaler have agreed on as part of that real estate uh, purchase agreement. So you sign those documents. And then when you need to submit your earnest money deposit, you're not sending that to the wholesaler, you're sending that into title and escrow, and they hold those funds uh, during the escrow period. When you actually close in the property, if you're paying with cash, or maybe you have a hard money lender, um, those funds, again, get wired into escrow. And then title goes through and makes sure that the title's clean, that there's no encumbrances or any kind of issues with the, uh, the title of the property. And as long as the property turns out clean, escrow and title then release the funds to uh, the wholesaler, so they get paid out. And then you now get your proof that, that says, hey, I actually own this property. All, all of the paperwork is filed with the county, um, and it's a, a true legal transaction. So that's how we do things in in California. We oftentimes purchase properties with no realtors involved. So what does it look like on, on your end, Ashley? Yeah, so in New York, you have to use a real uh, an attorney 
to close a real estate transaction. So you I just hire an attorney like you would even if you are going through a real estate agent. So the attorney, most likely if you're using an attorney that's knowledgeable in real estate um, closings, which you should, they will be able to guide you and walk you through the whole process. So it's fairly easy. Um, they'll drop the contract for you or, uh, you know, and then you can send it to the seller once it's signed, you send it back to your attorney, and then they pretty much handle the closing from there. They'll, you know, work with the seller's attorney um, to facilitate the whole closing. They work directly with the title company. I've never had to speak or talk to a title company before, um, which maybe it slows down the process. Maybe it speeds up the process. I don't know, but I do know closings take a lot longer in New York than they do in other parts of the country. So, um, yeah, I recommend hiring an attorney. So even if your state doesn't require require one, you can hire someone from the title company or an attorney, but somebody to help you facilitate. But you can also hire a real estate agent and just say, hey, can you just help me? I've already got my offer accepted. I need a contract drew up. Can I pay you a flat fee to just draw up this contract for me? Um, so that's one option that you could do too. Awesome. So let's jump down to the next question here. This one comes from Carl Anthony. And Carl's question is, how do you decide what hard money lender to use? Is there some kind of quote unquote Yelp or review system somewhere? So Carl, I am so glad you asked. Um, so if you go to the Bigger Pockets website and under network, one of the drop downs is hard money lenders. And there's a collection of uh, featured hard money lenders. You can also search for a hard money lender by state. And if you click on one of those hard money lenders profiles, you can see public reviews that were left for that hard money lender. Um, and then you can also just search for that hard money lenders name inside of the bigger pockets forums. And oftentimes there's different posts that people have talked about um, where you can hear other people's experiences with hard money lenders. So going to the bigger pockets uh, website again, under network, look for hard money lenders. There's a I don't even know, like there's like a massive database of hard money lenders there. Um, another great way to find hard money lenders is to ask other investors in your local market. So Cara, I'm not sure what uh, what city you're in, but if there's a local meetup or there's a local Facebook group or just any kind of place where investors congregate, I would go there and just ask like, hey, are there any hard money lenders or, or can you guys recommend any hard money lenders? Um, I feel like at almost every meetup I've been to, there's been at least one hard money lender at that event because they're also looking for new clients and new ways to get their deals funded. So they're always out there networking and, and meeting folks as well. So biggerpockets.com is a great first place to go. And then I would say going to somewhere like uh, an in-person meetup is a great second step. But once you find these companies, some of the things you want to look for, because not all private or not all hard money lenders are, are created equally, um, you want to ask questions about like, hey, what's your, what, what do your rates look like, right? Like what is the interest rate you're looking to pay? What kind of points are they going to charge you, right? That's where hard money lenders typically make a lot of their revenue is by charging points up front. So even if one hard money lender maybe has a lower interest rate, if their points are exceptionally high, the overall cost of the debt could be more. So you wanna make sure that you're evaluating the total cost of the money and not just looking at one metric by itself. Um, other things to look for are what kind of LTV are they going to provide? Um, some hard money lenders, if you're a first time rehabber, a first time flipper, they might only go up to like 60% LTV, whereas others might go up to 75 or 80% LTV, depending on your experience. So you want to ask as many questions as you can about their loan product and, and what the total cost of that money is, and then use that to start comparing one hard money lender to, to the next. Also, the thing I would recommend asking about too is their customer service. So are you going to be assigned a loan officer? 
Um, the hard money I did the past year, it was like 20 different people involved for each question. There was, you know, somebody else that had the answer and it was just an awful experience for me. So I recommend if you can work with a company that has, um, and I think, uh, Loha Capital was a sponsor at the Bigger Pockets conference this past year, but, um, I ended up working with them on a, a loan and the, we lost the deal, but, they were amazing. I had one loan specialist I was working with where another company, it was just every day was somebody else emailing me. And even my attorney was like, I don't even know who to contact anymore at this point. It keeps changing. Then after the loan was closed, they hire a third-party service to actually service the loan. So they're the ones who would send my statements and then collect my payment. When I talked to the person um, that was servicing the loan, the specialist there that was assigned to my loan product stated that there was no online access, that this hard money lender did not provide for that. So anytime I wanted to look at what my loan balance was, I would have to wait for my statement or I'd have to email. And I just feel like that is something that is so outdated that you can't log into some kind of online system, see what your balance is, check your payments things like that. Check, you know, the due date of your loan, things like that. I just, that was another thing that I really would have liked incorporated into the loan product. Um, and then the last thing was too, with their, you know, always having tons of people, different contacts that were going on. Somehow my insurance policy was sent to them multiple times and I ended up getting twice notices in the mail that I did not have insurance on the properties that they were lending on and that they were going to put their own um, insurance pl in place where they had already been sent twice already. So it just like was very unorganized and a very poor system. And so I think besides what you're paying, I think the, the I would have paid more to go with somebody where I didn't have these constant headaches of trying to get in contact with someone or trying to figure out these things or them to like mess things up. When we closed on one of the properties, it was a Friday. We sat at the closing table for three hours because the young 22-year-old kid that they assigned my to work on my thing did not know anything about title work. And we actually had a title attorney come to my closing because my attorney had predicted this was going to be an issue. It was three hours. And we ended up not closing until the following Monday when we finally proved that we were correct and they were wrong. So in this, that, that whole weekend, like we had contractors lined up, we had, you know, we we're ready to move on our properties and we had to wait until the following Monday. So I think not only just what you're paying for the hard money, but talking to other investors that have used them as to how much of a hassle is this actual company and is it worth my time? Because I would have rather paid extra for somebody that had their... I, I think it's also interesting, actually, that you said that that hard money lender didn't actually service the loan long term. I, I feel like uh, you know, usually the hard money companies that I see, like they they'll kind of keep that on the books because it is such a short period of time. So that that is that is interesting. Yeah, as far as the servicing of the loan, as to they kept the loan on the books, it was just the payment was collected. So it was almost like a just a third party company verifying I had the insurance in place that I was making the payments, but it was still loan was still on their books. They just actually didn't deal with the collecting of payments. Um, and just like the back end stuff of it, like the admin stuff, I guess. Got it. So they were just like collecting, they were like a payment collector for, for that hard money lender. Almost like a property management company, I would say. 
you know. All right, well, let's jump into our next question here. This one comes from Caleb Merver. And Caleb's question is, when is the best time to get approved? I'm thinking that I'll be trying to purchase and house hack a duplex in April or around that time. I'm wondering when the right time would be to get pre-approved. Should I wait until I have my down payment? Should I not wait at all? Should my credit be above a certain score? Um, yeah, what should I do? So Caleb, I, I think that the, the pre-approval is something that you should probably do sooner rather than later. And, and here, here's the reason why I say that. I think an important part of being able to shop for the right properties and identify the right markets is understanding what your purchasing power is. And when I talk about purchasing power, there's kind of two pieces to that. There's the capital that you have access to or that you have available. Um, so like how much money can you put towards down payments and rehab and startup costs and all those other things. But the other piece of your purchasing power is what amount of loan can you actually get approved for? And if this is your first time ever buying a property, you may not have a good sense of what loan amount you can actually get qualified for. So let's say, for example, that um, you're, you're super excited, you choose your market, you start analyzing deals, and maybe the average price for the properties that you've been looking at is $400,000. But say you go to get pre-approved once you finally get this property under contract, and then you realize you can only get approved for $200,000. Now you've wasted all this time and energy identifying this market and analyzing these deals at a price point that you can't actually afford. So I think that getting that pre-approval earlier in the process will help you narrow down and, and focus on the properties you can actually afford purchasing. So um, that would be my advice, Caleb, is, is have that conversation sooner rather than later. What are your What are your thoughts, Ashley? Yeah. And I think like the best, and they'll be able to guide you as to like how much you would need to actually close on the property. Like what would be your down payment amount? So if you don't have that yet, just be open and honest. Like, how much do I need to save? This is the type of house I want to purchase, or you know, this is how much I'm thinking of spending. Too, um, they can let you know because you can estimate what the closing costs are be, or you can think like, okay, I want to buy a hundred and sixty thousand dollar house. My down payment is going to be three and a half percent. So I know my mortgage amount is going to be this amortized over 30 years. This is what my monthly payment is. Yes, I can afford that. But when you're closing on the property, you're going to have to show reserves. You're going to have to show um, what your closing costs are. You'll have to pay those closing costs up front. So I think just sitting down with the lender and knowing what those things are uh, can be a huge advantage ahead of time instead of waiting until you find the perfect property and you put an offer in and then find out that you can't even get a loan for it because you don't have the amount of money that you actually needed, even though you could afford the monthly payment. All right. So let's move on to our last question here. This one comes from Elsie Talwar. And sorry, Elsie, I hope I got your, your name uh, correct there. Uh, but this question is LLC versus high limit liability plus umbrella insurance. Um, this would be my first rental property. So which, which one of these makes the most sense? Um, so we, we've kind of chatted about this in the past before about like the differences between going with an LLC versus maybe keeping some of the stuff in your personal name and, and what the kind of liability protections are. Um, so when you talk about putting a property into your personal name versus an LLC from a tax perspective, it doesn't really matter, right? Like if you have a property in your personal name, you can still recognize the income and expenses that are tied to that property as income for your LLC, right? So the, the deed and the mortgage 
have no impact on your ability to recognize that as um, business income. So there are no tax benefits to doing one, or there are no major tax benefits of doing one versus the other. Where you where you really get the benefits um, is from a liability perspective. Um, so from an LLC, if you have the property deeded to an LLC, if something happens, you know, there's some kind of claim against that that property, instead of someone being able to come after you personally and saying, hey, I'm going to take Tony and Ashley's assets, they can if you set things up correctly, they can really only go after the assets the, that the LLC owns. Um, now, if you, for whatever reason, decide to get the debt in your personal name um, or the property in your personal name, maybe because the type of debt that you got or whatever the reason was, there are still options to protect yourself from a liability perspective. And that's what we did in our business because a lot of our debt is in our personal names or in our partner's personal names. And what we did was we got an umbrella policy. And I want to say that umbrella policy has up to like $2 million of liability protection um, in addition to what our homeowner's insurance covers as well. So for us, we have um, a few layers of protection. We have the homeowner's insurance as layer number one, and then we have the umbrella policy as layer number two above uh, the homeowner's insurance. And for us, that kind of gives us the peace of mind that, you know, $2 million should cover the vast majority of liability issues you would see on a property. And that helps us sleep sleep better at night. So um, there are costs associated with setting these LLCs too, um, Elsie. So like, you know, you have your your LLC creation costs you have to maintain those every year in California. I think it's like 800 bucks. You have to file a tax return. There's QuickBook files. Like there's more things you have to do as you create more LLCs. So I think you have to weigh the cost versus benefit of how much risk am I exposing myself to? And, you know, what is the, the potential reward of, of having that LLC. So that's how we set it up, Ash. I don't know what you guys are doing in your business. Yeah. So the first thing you should just look at is if you were sued, what would be people be able to take from you? What is your net worth? If you had to liquidate everything to pay this lawsuit, how much would there be? So if you rent an apartment, you don't even own your own house right now, you don't have a car or you have a car, but it has very little equity in it. And you just bought a brand new car and it's, you know, if you sold it, you'd probably make you know, make less than what you actually owe on it. So look at what your assets actually are, because if you are sued and there's nothing to take, or, you know, maybe you have $20,000 in net worth or something like that, that in, in most of the time an attorney is not going to waste their time going after and suing you because there's very little that somebody could actually take from you in a lawsuit. So think about that because one of the biggest reasons for getting an LLC is for that liability protection from your personal assets or from other assets that are that are in other LLCs. What I, I do for my, so I have a business, the, the liquor store. The liquor store is in a different entity than the building the liquor store is. And I learned this from another investor who any business he has is in an, its own LLC and then any building that is that it's in is in its own LLC and that just gives you that liability protection separate from each other. So when you're putting properties into an LLC, if you all of a sudden have a million dollars in equity, it may be time to start opening another LLC and building properties into that LLC so you're spreading out the net worth. So if that one LLC is sued, you're not getting the $5 million, you know, is, is up for grabs from somebody that you have an equity and said, maybe spreading it out. So there's a million in each of those LLCs. So they're only going to be able to come after that million. And you still have your other 4 million in equity for the LLCs, but just starting out, think about what your personal assets are and how much is actually available for someone to sue you for. Um, 
The next biggest thing to look at is how do you want to finance this deal? The 30-year fixed rate, low interest rate, lowest interest rate you can get today. But um, doing that, then get the umbrella insurance policy on if you put into your personal name. You can always go and refinance it later on and put it in a commercial mortgage where you're deeding it into an LLC. There are several investors, including myself, who have bought a property in my personal name, got that personal mortgage, and then deeded it later on into an LLC. And since I have remained 100% owner of the property in my personal name and also 100% owner of the LLC, my due on sale clause has not been called. I'm still making payments on the property Banks are not in the business of foreclosing on homes. If the property is still being paid, it tends to not be an issue, but look through your mortgage contract and see if you are what the due on sale clause actually entails. But I've seen a lot of mortgages changing the language where if you remain 100% owner, um, that you know, it's, they will not call the, the due on sale clause. Yeah. So, uh, Elsie, just, you know, hopefully that gives you some insight there. There are a lot of factors to consider there. Um, but luckily, even if you decide not to go with the LLC, there are still ways to protect yourself as, as the owner of that, that property. So, um, yeah, I hope that was helpful. If you guys would like to ask us a question, you can leave us a voicemail at one eight 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 five rookie and we may play it on a Saturday rookie reply or on Wednesday as a voicemail recording for our guests to answer. Thank you guys so much for listening and don't forget to join the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group where you can also leave us a message onto there. But I can almost guarantee that before we uh, air the podcast episode, you are going to have a ton of answers and responses to your question within the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group. Uh, it's just great to have like-minded individuals to kind of consult with and interact with. We have rookie investors who are just learned about real estate investing from a friend or from YouTube or whoever that are joining. Then we also have experienced investors right in the Facebook group too. So make sure you join. I'm Ashley at Wealth from Rentals, and he's Tony at Tony J. Robinson, and we will be back on Wednesday with a guest. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals Enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today.
The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.